Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Off the Bench podcast with your hosts, Galena and Sophia. So nearly a year ago, we released a podcast with our guest speaker, Rick Panning. Um, there we talked about the pivotal call to action regarding PAMA legislation. And now in 2022, um, it's definitely been a year filled with uh, controversial lab-related legislation that's been ruffling some feathers in our community. Um, and so with us today, we have Jim Flanagan, the Executive Vice President of ASCLS, to discuss some of these issues. Welcome, Jim. Glad to be here. <laughs> and it's it's kind of a it's a hard place to start because, like I said, there's just it feels like a, a very action packed year. Um, and so I figured we would start with the uh, with the most um, controversial one, which would be the Valid Act. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about it, which stands for Verifying Accurate and Leading Edge IVCT Development Act? Um, and what's it all about? So I think your observation is correct. This has been easily the most action-packed year uh, of my time working in advocacy. I have no doubt that it's a result of um, increased visibility of the laboratory community uh, within Washington, D.C., whether that's on, in the legislative branch or the regulatory branch of government. And so it, it is a crazy amount of um, action that's occurring right now. And so valid is the one that's been the most controversial. Um, I need to do a little kind of education at the beginning. So the, and this is kind of like, how, do, how does a bill become law, except what happens after the bill becomes law. And so everybody I think knows that uh, in order for something to become a law, Congress, both houses of Congress need to pass it, needs to go to the president, the president signs it. That's what makes a law. But things that occur in our country are very complex. And so as a result, uh, what has to happen is um, regulators who are part of the administration, the president's branch of government, write rules around how to make uh, a law work. Uh, practically speaking. And so um, we have for a very long time in the laboratory community had things called laboratory developed tests. Uh, by definition, all laboratory developed tests are high complexity tests. And a, a laboratory developed test can be something very simple. Um, it can simply be uh, adjusting how uh, you use an instrument away from the manufacturer's written uh, instructions. Uh, and so oftentimes uh, low level LDTs are being created in clinical laboratories around the country. And that was not a problem for a very long time uh, until um, science advanced to the point where laboratories could really do uh, manufacturer level um, laboratory developed tests. And so over time, it became clear to ASCLS at least uh, that it would be appropriate for Congress to, uh, or the administration, we were advocating either or, 
uh, would begin regulating laboratory developed tests. Now, if you were to talk to the FDA today, the FDA would tell you that they believe they already have the authority to regulate laboratory developed tests. And they're using that authority uh, to regulate, uh, for instance, during the COVID pandemic, all those emergency use authorizations for um, molecular COVID testing. Um, you're seeing the same thing with monkeypox. Uh, there are emergency use authorizations that the FDA has that are saying, yes, move forward with these tests. Other side of the coin are the manufacturers of the instruments. And those folks, in order to get their instruments um, approved by the FDA, need to go through a process called the 510K process. And it's, of course, um, very thorough. Uh, and it requires them to develop all sorts of data and it requires them to, to get the approval of the FDA. And it, it essentially requires them to prove that the tests that they are going to manufacture do actually produce the results that they're claiming they, they produce. They've begun uh, over the last few years, begun to raise concerns about the laboratory developed tests that are being done within laboratories because those at scale do not currently require that same kind of oversight, that same 510K process that manufacturers undergo. And so we've had a, we've had a problem for some time. ASCLS has been on the record, whether via legislation or regulation, that we believed it was appropriate for there to be a risk-based regulation of laboratory-developed tests. Um, many, many, for many, many years, we, this has been the position of the society. So um, on the regulation side, as I said, the FDA says that uh, it does have the authority to regulate laboratory developed tests. And during the later years of the Obama administration began to put out something called guidance. So we've talked about legislation and we've talked about regulation. There's something called sub-regulatory guidance, which um, will put you to sleep. If you're listening to the podcast going to bed, this is, this is the part where you drift off to la-la land. Um, Sub-regulatory guidance are, is a method that uh, federal agencies use to guide the people they regulate to do the right thing without actually going through the formal rulemaking process. We're experiencing as a, as a professional community, the rulemaking process from CMS on personnel regulations. And so, that's formal rulemaking. In the case of the FDA, they wanted to just provide guidance to say to uh, laboratories, this is how we think we should regulate um, laboratory developed tests. Congress did not like that and held hearings in the United States Senate that essentially hauled the FDA officials in front of the Senate and said, don't do this. So the FDA backed off. During the later uh, Trump administration that was reinforced uh, when the administration told the FDA to no longer issue these guidance documents, if they wanted to create regulations, they needed to go through a formal rulemaking process, publish the rules in the federal register, accept comments, consider those comments and create a final rule, which does have the impact of law. And so Congress got to work starting in 2016 on a series of bills that tried to reform how not only laboratory developed tests were regulated, but how um, the IVD industry or the, in, uh, the, the, in, 
the, the instruments that you use on an everyday basis, which are called IVDs, um, how they're regulated and trying to come up with a single regulatory framework for all of that. And there was a, a bill called the Diagnostic Innovation and Accuracy Act or DAIA, which attempted to do that and did it very poorly. ASCLS and our government affairs committee read these bill, the bill, which was several hundred pages in length and uh, provided feedback to the sponsors um, who in the house were Congresswoman Diane DeGette and Congressman Larry Bouchon. Um, it's interesting to note that Congresswoman Bichette DeGette is a Democrat. Congressman Bouchon is a Republican and happens oh. to be a physician. And so there was bipartisan work on the part of these two lawmakers to come up with a solution. DAIA was not it. <laughs> we did not support DAIA as an organization. Each time a new Congress comes in, uh, so every two years, all of the bills that existed in the last Congress go away and we start new. And so in not in the current Congress, but the one before, um, Deguette and Bouchon introduced something called valid. Let's call that valid one. Again, there we had some serious concerns about how it was constructed, but um, it was much better. And so we provided more comments and worked with the sponsors and their staffs on the Hill to try to improve the bill. And we got to the last Congress and it didn't make it out of committee. And so it still needed a, a lot more work. And so the sponsors engaged with stakeholders that includes laboratory groups, manufacturers, patient groups who are affected by access to testing like laboratory developed tests and these esoteric tests that are sometimes used for orphan diseases and um, came out with something that was actually pretty good. And so let's call that valid two that was introduced in the current Congress. They continued to work and gain, get, get insight from various stakeholder groups until we got to the point where they had a bill that ASCLS could support earlier this year. So ASCLS, the College of American Pathologists and a number of other groups support, including AdvaMed, uh, which is the manufacturer's trade group, support VALID in its current form. There are other groups uh, within the laboratory community in particular who are against any regulation of laboratory mm -hmm. developed tests. Okay. And then there's an other bucket of organizations within the laboratory community, which are in favor of risk-based uh, laboratory developed testing regulation, but are concerned about the processes that are currently being used to get the bill passed. And so we have now uh, everyone arrayed against one another on valid. We've got a lot of hyperbole going on about valid. Um, ASCLS, if anything, believes that valid is not strong enough. Other groups are in favor of it and say it's eh, it's a little bit too strong, but we'll support it anyways. Um, and then there are groups that simply believe that there that CLIA should be the regulatory framework for laboratory developed tests. It's important. ASCLS's position is that it's important that there be regulation to eliminate the abuses of the system that are occurring. Theranos was using laboratory developed tests in order to produce the whatever they were producing. 
and never had to prove to anybody that the results that they were providing were valid. Um, there are other examples of that same thing. Um, and because there are large scale labs who are essentially commercializing laboratory developed tests without having to prove their validity, we've, we believe that there's, it's appropriate for things to, to be regulated. Thank you for that thorough background. You know, I think we can all agree across organizations that patient safety should be our first concern. And that's what this regulation uh, would hope to in introduce. Um, you know, as you mentioned, there are several organizations or uh, many of those who really oppose valid and the restrictions that it would impose. And so what I wanted to do was kind of um, discuss some of the, the hot topics and, and hyperboles, like you called them, um, to, to see if we can maybe, um, um, you know, illuminate a little bit more uh, the concern and how it would be mitigated with valid. Um, and like you said, you know, there's a, it's a five-year implementation plan and not all the pieces of that plan have been developed yet. So we, we don't have a lot of the answers, uh, but one of the, one of the biggest concerns that I hear um, in our community is that the power of laboratory developed tests lies in your ability to edit and modify them on a short notice as you need. Um, and, and you can really reduce the time limitation and now introducing FDA regulation is going to severely hinder the capacity to modify testing as needed because the response time of FDA is, is, is more prolonged. So I, I, I agree with you that the goal of any regulation should be to protect patient safety and improve healthcare outcomes, uh, which is, uh, which concerns me then with the folks who are arguing against valid using those kinds of talking points, uh, because that's not what the bill says. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, a couple of key provisions in the bill that ASCLS would prefer aren't there, but is actually helping attract other people to support it is a full grandfathering of all current laboratory developed tests. There's also limits on which laboratory developed tests would be regulated under the new law. It's only high risk tests. Most laboratory developed tests would not be considered high risk tests. And finally, there's it's only regulated if you're doing high volumes of those tests. So if you are commercializing a laboratory developed test, it becomes regulated. So these are high risk tests being run at uh, enormous tens of thousands of tests levels mm -hmm. um, that are going to be regulated. And most of the rest of the, of them are either grandfathered in or, or don't trip the trigger of being one of those two things to cause regulation of those tests. It, it strikes me for, that for those who are arguing fully against any regulation, um, that they rarely use the term patient safety. Uh, they rarely talk about um, the, the impact on patient outcomes when they're making those arguments, or at least attempting to make honest arguments about it. Uh, because the, the bill itself is, from ASCLS perspective again, fairly watered down. Uh, it creates a, a very good framework um, but from ASCLS's perspective, we'd prefer something to be much stronger in the regulatory um, to regulate these things. Um, but we're, we're, we accept that um, we're going to have to compromise in order to get this bill passed. Um, 
and and that's the real challenge here for those groups who agree with a risk-based approach, but who are concerned about the the legislative process being used to pass it. Um, the the objections um, unfortunately are going to prevent or may prevent the whole bill from ever passing, and so as a result, their objections to the the behind the scenes of what happens on legislation could prevent good policy from becoming law. Now, you you just mentioned that it, it could prevent it from passing. As far as I understand, isn't Valid Act attached to other must-pass legislation um, for FDA funding? As we're talking about this, yes, but that may not continue to be the case. So uh, mm -hmm. the Valid Act was attached to the user fee bill that funds uh, the FDA. Um, and it passed um, out of the committee and is waiting for consideration on the uh, floor of the Senate at this point. A separate bill also to fund the FDA using user fees passed out of the House um, and is waiting for the Senate to consider that. But the bills are not identical. And when that happens, you can do a, a couple things can happen. One is Congress can create um, a committee to review the differences between the bills and come to a consensus. But that's not been used in some time. And essentially what's going on behind the scenes is a negotiation between the Senate and the House on what will be included and what won't be included. There are a number of very important, what are called riders on that user fee bill. Valid is the largest of them but there's also regulatory frameworks for cosmetics, food, and some other new ways, the, the new authorities that FDA would be given to do uh, more regulation. Um, and the, the Republicans for the most part are against those riders. Uh, and in the Senate, um, unless it's a budget bill, you have to have 60 votes to overcome the filibuster. And so by adding them to this must-pass bill in the Senate, the belief was that all of this could pass. But things kind of slowed down because there's this negotiation with the House. It's unclear if any of those riders will ultimately be in the final bill. And in addition, the federal government overall needs to be funded before the midterm elections in November. They're the federal government's going to run out of money. So there's something called a continuing resolution. And what we are hearing now, and this might change tomorrow, is that a clean user fee bill without any of the riders uh, will likely be attached to this continuing resolution, which will pass overwhelmingly in both the House and the Senate and become law. And it'll fund the government through the end of the calendar year early into early next year. But uh, we believe that the rider package, all of those riders on the user fee bill are still uh, viable legislation. And after the midterm elections, after Congress leaves Washington at the end of October, uh, there's gonna be a lame duck session, which will happen between when the midterm elections occur and when the new Congress comes in in January. And during that session, oftentimes a lot of key pieces of legislation pass. Uh, and this would be set up for that lame duck session. Uh, we'll talk about another piece of legislation later that kind of fits that same mold and is likely to be considered in that session as well. Thank you for that uh, update. So it sounds like we'll hear 
where Valid is at uh, by end of the year, right? Or January? Absolutely. I think we'll probably know more uh, by the end of November. Okay. I think, you know, just before we move on to other legislation, like you mentioned, that's going to be important for the end of the year, um, other, other th terms that you've mentioned for Valid Act, um, for those that don't know, um, would be grandfathering of tests, um, where if you have a test that's up and running, um, you know, according to this bill, it would not be affected, uh, affected by this bill and you'd be grandfathered in. And the interesting uh, comeback that I hear for that is, or issue with grandfathering is that then it stifles innovation because now if my test is grandfathered and isn't touched, I'm not going to want to modify it. Um, and then pay the user fees associated with it and undergo the review process. Um, uh, so that's one, one comment that I, that I hear frequently when talking about valid and grandfathering. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a lot of, um, like you said, co controversies around it and a lot of gray area around it right now. So the, the, it only gets regulated if it's high risk and high volume and is mm -hmm. producing on at high volume, you're producing yeah. enormous amounts of revenue. This is not going to cover every laboratory developed test. And the, the arguments against it are as if all regular, all laboratory developed tests are regulated in the same way. Yeah. Um, for most, in most cases, there may be a piece of paper to file, I guess. Um, <laughs> I don't know that there's any significant user fees associated with LDTs. Certainly, it's not clear from the law. As you said, mm -hmm. much of the detail will come out when, during formal rulemaking. So mm -hmm. once a law passes, then the real work starts, which is to put together the actual rules about how the law will be implemented. Yeah. And again, there's like a five-year plan for developing um, all the regulation around it. So it would all get worked out. So thank you for that background. Quick clarification. By high risk, what do you mean by high risk for... Because I'm sure some people will be like, well, I think this is a high risk, but is it actually a high risk? So there's a definition for it. I'm, okay. I'm not going to go into the definition, but there's a formal definition that essentially high risk is something, in, in the case of a test, is something that if an inaccurate result or an invalid result was um, reported back to the clinician uh, managing the patient, that the result of that would be either the patient's death or uh, an, uh, a delay in treatment or an inappropriate treatment that would result in the patient being permanently harmed as a result of it. Yeah, well, and with that, that's actually the last, I swear, there's so many pieces to talk about, about Valid Act, um, that the test classification and hearing about low, medium, and high risk test classification. And again, the argument that I hear is um, assigning risk is very hard. It's not black and white. And, and some people even say that all tests are medically actionable. So there's no such thing as a low risk test. Um, so that, that's kind of the other ambiguity gray area I hear. Um, so it's good to hear that there's um, formal definitions. Like you said, oh, absolutely. It, it is very specific. FDA uses risk-based analysis on a whole lot of other, in a whole lot of other regulations. This is not unfamiliar territory for them. Um, yeah, you could argue that all tests have some risk associated with them, but you know, we, we are very familiar with 
a tiering system because we've got waived moderate and high complexity tests. FDA is able to determine based on specific legal definitions what is fits into any one of those. It's actually an algorithm. Um, and they'll be able to figure out what a high risk and a moderate and a low risk test is. Well, hopefully for anyone that's listening that, you know, is worried about the valid act, um, hearing that this isn't anything new, um, that there are clear definitions around it. And then there's going to be an assessment period. Um, hopefully, uh, that helps, um, lessen the concern around valid act and support patient safety and what the valid act um, uh, proposes. And then with that, uh, to transition to another piece of legislation, um, you know, we already mentioned CMS in our valid discussion, but they keep coming up in other oh, topics. Yes. <laughs> and speaking of patient safety, um, some of you may have heard, hopefully, or seen comics or like, you know, seen people post about these. Uh, this proposal by CMS where the the juicy bit is they're like nursing can do laboratory testing. So like the very simplified version, at least. And I'm sure, Jim, if you want to go into that a bit more clearly, other than there's saying that nursing degrees are equivalent to any like bio, uh, biological chemo, uh, chemistry, biochemical and CLS, like like hard science degree. No offense to nursing, but in terms of hard sciences and the amount of lab hours that we've put in, and speaking as a bio major who graduated as well as a CLS major, I have put so many hours in the lab and learned so many skills from that that I know my nursing cousin never learned. So, Jim, if you want to dig into that juicy proposal. So the, the CMS came out with a whole raft of proposals, and this is part of formal rulemaking. And a lot of the proposals are around, it's all a single rule, a single posting, and it includes things like fees and how, what fines are associated with failing to comply with the law, with a, a lab and a whole lot of other things. But the juicy pieces are around personnel. And the one that's the most deeply concerning for the laboratory community is the suggestion that uh, nursing degrees, a bachelor's degree, nursing degrees, should qualify an individual to perform high complexity testing. Um, we know nurses already perform wave testing and, and, to, and some of them maybe even performing moderate complexity testing after they've been properly trained. But this proposed rule would make nurses uh, eligible to perform high complexity testing. Uh, and uh, we agree, uh, th there's no indication that uh, nurses are prepared to do this. There's no indication nurses want to do this. Um, you know, th this is something that uh, we believe will harm patients. I think it will be an almost immediate uh, vector for diagnostic error, which, you know, all of us, including the federal agencies, are trying to eliminate. Um, and it's something that has some history that's ca causing where we're at today. So um, for a very long time, uh, CMS has had an unwritten rule that allowed nurses to perform high complexity testing. Um, this really came out of the early days of CLIA. CLIA was the second CLIA was passed in 1988 and the rules were created in the early 1990s and began rolling out being implemented. There were some cases where in rural areas, 
uh, where there were not enough personnel, where the, the choice was between having a nurse perform a test and having nobody perform the test, essentially making it unavailable. And CMS made uh, a fateful decision that they were going to allow it to occur for nurses to do this testing. Uh, and that's, that's truly unfortunate because over time, we're unaware of, we are unaware of where this occurs. Uh, but over time, um, this became something that has occurred. Um, and once an agency allows some, somebody to do something, it's very difficult for them to not allow them to do it moving forward. And so in April of 2016, we talked about sub-regulatory guidance before. We had a little sub-regulatory guidance. Uh, CMS put out a memo that uh, acknowledged this unwritten rule had existed for some time and said they were going to uh, consider nursing degrees as equivalent to those of a clinical laboratory science. And uh, ASCLS, ASCP, a number of other laboratory groups demonstrated clearly uh, and uh, convincingly that those degrees were not at all equivalent. Um, nurses are trained to be nurses. Medical laboratory scientists are trained to be medical laboratory scientists. And uh, they, they have this different competencies um, and different goals for their work. And so we have been pressing CMS for some time. Uh, we were told by um, some administrators at CMS that they were told by their legal counsel that they could simply not, they could not rescind that, but they needed to go through formal rulemaking. And so when um, this proposed rule came out, we were a bit excited to say, boy, maybe this is the point at which they're going to fix this problem. And they actually made it worse. <laughs> so um, ASCLS, uh, our comments have been submitted to CMS um, uh, objecting to this. Um, there's there's absolutely uh, an intended degree of contempt or tone of contempt in our, our comments to the Secretary of Health and Human Services. It is absurd that uh, CMS would believe this. They use the justification of nurses performing wave testing and point of care settings as justification that we're sure that they can do high complexity testing. No, they cannot. <laughs> Jim, let me ask you this. Do you happen to know um, if there's a position provided by a nursing organization, such as American Nurses Association, do they have a position on this? So both the American Nurses Association and we believe the associations representing advanced practice nurses, so nurse practitioners, are both going to mildly support um, this continuation. Uh, that's not surprising. Um, because anytime a nursing group is asked to say, should we lessen the scope of practice of a nurse? Should we do it? They're going to say no. Uh, they don't believe that the risk is as concerning as we are concerned about it. Um, um, our perspective is not that nurses are beating down the doors to come into clinical laboratories and perform testing. They're not. They can't take the pay cut. Uh, but there may be instances where you have a high complexity test that's being performed um, in, a, in a specialty clinic um, or uh, high complexity testing that's being performed, uh, blood banking, for instance, in rural areas where a nurse uh, is being forced to do something that he or she is not prepared to do. Um, in those cases, the risk is on the nurse. It's not necessarily an institution. The, the nursing associations don't believe that that will occur. Um, and they're perf that's perfectly fine for them to have that opinion. 
Um, but they are not uh, strongly arguing that this should be kept. It's simply a normal thing that you would expect to hear from nursing groups. Well, now that you mentioned rural areas, that's actually, I was trying to think of potential benefits to this. And so I was thinking that in rural areas, if there's no lab techs that are available, uh, maybe there is some benefit to have expanding nurses capacity, which not good for patient safety. Again, if you're expanding the duties uh, of a nurse and what they're expected to do, that decreases patient safety. Uh, but maybe that kind of helps the situation. But just like you said, then the liability for testing like blood bank is on the nurse. And now um, their licensure is at stake if they are giving out wrong units of blood or, you know, that's that sounds like it's adding more stress than solving a problem. Sure, the nurses don't want to do this. And the, the question becomes, would you rather have no test or would you, have an, would you rather have an inaccurate test result? Mm -hmm. If you're a clinician, what's worse, a bad test or no test at all? And if that bad test results in uh, a clinician doing the wrong thing for the patient, well, in that case, having no test at all would have prevented that clinician from, uh, from doing the wrong thing. Um, it, it, goes, it, it really goes to how do we care for patients in rural settings and underserved communities where there's a lack of resources. And the solution to a lack of resources is not to lower the bar, it's to provide the resources to those areas so that they can have appropriate care. And there, there are programs um, that provide additional funding to rural hospitals and critical access hospitals so that they can hire the right people to do the appropriate testing and, and perform appropriate care. Um, so yeah, it's, it's something that is, uh, important. Um, we have certainly made our, our, our position known as have all of the other laboratory groups on nursing. And with this, there was, a, I remember another juicy tidbit that came out that I know ASCLS is in favor for, which was saying that DCLS essentially is good to go for a laboratory director. But then I've also heard that some other organizations are very against that. So um, it's interesting that the rules have always been written so that a doctor of clinical laboratory science could always be a high complexity laboratory director as long as that person was board certified by a board approved by the, the um, Department of Health and Human Services. What the rule, proposed rule does is uh, tells everybody that uh, CMS intends to interpret that to be both clinical doctorates and PhDs. Up to this point, in order for somebody to qualify, they needed to have a PhD in clinical laboratory science. The DCLS is a clinical doctorate. It's different. Um, and uh, what CMS is saying is that they intend to recognize the DCLS as one of those doctoral degrees. The DCLS will still need to be board certified. Um, that won't change. That's not proposed change in the rule. ASCLS has been a proponent of the advanced practice doctorate for a very long time. Our House of Delegates many years ago passed a position paper in support of it. We support it with, uh, by, by ma managing the DCLS steering committee within ASCLS, which brings together all the programs so they can coordinate their activities. 
ASCLS supports it through the promulgation of the body of knowledge that was approved by our House of Delegates over the summer and is available uh, for anybody to review. And so, yes, we're a big advocate for this. We are very excited. We intend, though we haven't just already, uh, we intend to put comments for CMS to uh, support the CMS position on this. We wanted to separate our nursing comments from our DCLS comments so we could say we could be good cop on one side, bad cop on the other. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, we're, we're very supportive of it. Um, it's, it's interesting, we talked a little bit about those organizations that were opposing uh, valid and the lack of attention to patients and patient safety. If you look at those organizations that are opposing uh, the DCLS, the word patient never appears once in their comments. Hmm. Healthcare outcomes never appear in their comments. It's all this insular uh, viewpoint of the laboratory um, not going anywhere anywhere beyond the borders of the, the door to get in and out. And that presents a, a multitude of problems with that attitude. Um, it's clinical laboratory science. It's not just what occurs in the laboratory, but how it affects the, clini the clinical management of patients. Um, and that insular, uh, we're just here in the laboratory, creates all sorts of problems with recognizing the value of what comes out of that laboratory. Um, it creates barriers between of communication between laboratory professionals and other healthcare professionals. And those things need to be addressed in order for the laboratory to be recognized fully for the value that it brings to the healthcare system, as well as fully recognizing the value laboratory professionals bring to the, the healthcare system as well. And so we're, we're excited that CMS has recognized this and is ready to put clinical back in clinical laboratory science. Which is fantastic. And on top of that, we've even now have a standardization of the medical laboratory professionals name, correct? So yeah, outside of legal, um, we are working ASCLS as a sponsoring organization of the board of certification has adopted and approved um, a nomenclature position paper that's also been adopted by all of the other sponsoring and, and other groups that are supporting the Board of Certification. Even some of the groups we've heard that aren't part of the Board of Certification are adopting the same nomenclature, which is wonderful. Um, I just saw that one of the other professional societies is changing the, the membership category uh, of their memberships to not be no longer be clinical laboratory scientists, but medical laboratory scientists right within their membership. So uh, it's all uh, going to bring some standardization, which will help those outside the laboratory recognize who these people are. They're not techs, they're not lab rats, they are medical laboratory professionals, scientists and technicians that are working to uh, bring the best patient care uh, to patients across the country. That's fantastic. And I think that actually works as a perfect segue into the last piece of legislation we want to talk about, which is also something that the general public can help us with to help provide good laboratory care. And that would be the SALSA Act. And I think Galena has some more on that too. Uh, yeah. So with SALSA, it's Saving Access to Laboratory Services Act. Um, very exciting. Uh, because again, last year we talked about PAMA and uh, reimbursement cuts to laboratory testing and how we've already taken significant cuts 
Um, the one silver lining of COVID pandemic is that those cuts were paused um, and are due to continue again unless this SALSA Act passes and, and the Congress introduced legislation which would update the PAMA lab reporting requirements. Um, and from what I'm reading about it, 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 the data reporting would be more inclusive of all sorts of laboratories. Is that correct, Jim? It is. And I think you've summarized the bill very well in, in the stakes, really. Um, PAMA was passed in 2014, and we've been dealing with the ill effects of that since 2016 and 2017, when the final rules were created. Uh, the, the benefit of SALSA is twofold. One is for laboratories that are required to report data, they're not going to have to report it nearly as often. It's not going to be nearly as arduous. Uh, it's going to take less effort for them to be compliant. And second, it's going to be more representative of the, of the market. Market rates are great. Medicare should be paying market rates. Um, but uh, doing it based on data that's not the market uh, is inappropriate. Um, and so SALSA is making its way forward. We anticipate that it will be included, we hope, in this end of year spending package. Um, during the lame duck session, there's gonna be something called an omnibus bill where everything gets kind of put into it. Uh, we anticipate that a whole lot of provisions related to Medicare and uh, SALSA is related to Medicare, uh, cl the clinical laboratory fee schedule for Medicare, uh, that those will all be included. It is moving, uh, but it really needs, we need to keep pushing. Um, it has uh, been introduced both in the Senate and the House. It has sponsors that are both Democrats and Republicans. Um, and in stark contrast to uh, the, the profession's positions on valid, everyone's on board with SALSA. This is a good piece of legislation. It's good healthcare policy. Uh, and so we're looking forward to helping push it over the finish line. We're getting prepared to head to Washington, D.C. for our legislative symposium. Uh, and one of the things we'll be talking with our members of Congress about is seeking more sponsors. So if this act, uh, you're saying it may pass in the lame duck session, mm -hmm. if it does, uh, would that automatically prevent cuts in 2023? Would that put a pause on it? Absolutely. That'd be fantastic. That would be it would. So if it passes, we have to have a taco party in honor of the salsa act. That's <laughs> what I is all I'm hearing, honestly. But all I actually, this taco salsa at dinner time is making me hungry. <laughs> but I do apologize. I actually forgot to ask um, about the CMS regulations. Is that one of the ones also in the lame duck session? So the regulations don't require any intervention on the part of Congress. This is something that the um, the administration is responsible for. And so they, they're required under, with the CMS regulations to take all the comments that have been um, submitted. They need to consider them and then issue a final rule. Uh, the rules cannot be arbitrary. They cannot be capricious. Those are the two legal standards. Um, and uh, they need to be justified in, in the rules. And so I, I would imagine, given the number of comments, and we're in the tens of thousands at this point, that it's going to take them a, quite a bit of time to sort through those and come up with uh, what the final regulations will be. But that's uh, that will not be affected by the um, the midterms ele elections, the, mm -hmm. the lame duck session or anything else. That's a, an entirely separate process. 
So it sounds like with Valid Act and Salsa, we should have an update by end of year, hopefully good ones. Um, but yep. but the CMS related one, we could be well into 2023 before we hear anything. That's probably true. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so if if I'm a listener um, and uh, politics go over my head and I don't know how I can help, um, what would you recommend, Jim? So you need to be engaged. Um, putting your head in the sand does not make the problem go away. Um, the the government has an enormous influence on how your day-to-day -day work goes. Um, the government has resources that it can put towards helping solve problems like our workforce. Uh, it has the ability to um, make things more equitable and more fair. Um, I understand that the the polarization that occurs uh, on social media has caused a lot of people to kind of turn off. That's not the right way to do it. Um, you do need to vote, but you also need to talk with your members of Congress. You need to have your voice heard by submitting comments to the federal government when they propose regulations you agree or disagree with. That's how the process works. And disengaging from the process will simply mean that your voice isn't heard. Um, the, the federal government, whether they're your elected officials or whether they're the administrators, can simply ignore that you exist. The only way you can force them to acknowledge your, your perspectives is to be engaged in the process. And, you know, it, it helps if you remember a little bit of your AP government from high school um, so that you, you remember how all the pieces fit together and how it works. Certainly, ASCLS is here uh, to help. We regularly put on briefings that are free to our members to come and we tell everybody what's happening and how things work. Um, and so, and we're happy to continue to do that. I would say until last year, I had this misconception that I as an individual was really far removed from our political leaders. And, and then I went to my first legislative symposium and boy, did that change everything because you realize how actually accessible they are. Um, and how much their whether it's their job to listen um, to what you have to say. And so, so with that, even if you don't have an opportunity um, or the time, you know, we're all very busy to meet via Zoom or in person or attend a legislative symposium that lets you speak to your representatives. Um, there are quick actions that you could take. One of the things we'll do is include a link in the description of this podcast um, for stoplabcuts.org. Um, and it is a very quick form that's pretty much already filled out for you that you could use to submit. Um, this one, the Stop Lab Cuts, is specific to salsa um, and, and kind of promoting um, the needed update to PAMA lab reporting requirements. So I think that's a really great start if you don't have much time or resources at the moment. And to encourage you to participate in uh, stotlabcuts.org, every time, you, whenever you do submit something, grant yourself one taco. When you share it with your friends and you get your friends to do something, grant yourself a taco and grant your friend a taco. And that's the way to do it. <laughs> 
It's a, a great encouragement. Um, Jim, last question for you. Um, thank you so much. This has been very informative. Um, you know, I, I think uh, legislative updates um, can can get very heavy um, and like you need a lot of background. And so we really appreciate uh, the civics um, background that was necessary for this conversation. If uh, additional resources for information, so uh, besides Google, of course, um, does ASCLS um, on their website have position papers that users can access or listeners can access to read we more? Do. Yeah, we do. We have a, a one of our strategic pillars is advocacy, and advocacy is right on the top navigation of our website. So. Anytime you can go there and see ASCLS positions on things, there's an advocacy, advocacy uh, action center. Thanks to Jim for giving us a great update. So again, guys, the action for today is to participate in stoplabcuts.org, to grant yourself a taco, get your friends to do it, to grant you and your friends taco, then everyone can go get tacos so we can have salsa passed and then you can get <laughs> salsa. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk with the two of you. Thank you so much, Jim, All right, thanks, for your guys. time. Thank All you. Bye-bye. Right, and as always, don't forget to tune in to next month's uh, podcast. October, I feel like, is our favorite time of the year because we love doing Halloween-related uh, themes. It's like the Twilight Zone. What if instead of medical laboratory sciences, you went into research sciences? <laughs> because I will be speaking to... Uh, Daniel uh, Attic, Andic. Oh gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm butchering her last name. She is known on Instagram for running the channel Fem in STEM, which features women in STEM, and a lot of them are researchers. And she and I talked about a fantastic, uh, a great talk about the differences between academic research in the clinical setting versus the medical laboratory setting. So it's a little twilight zony. That sounds fantastic. I'm looking forward to that conversation. All right, everyone, have a wonderful rest of your September. Happy September and see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.